are bringing. Lord, we thank you that, Jesus, you came to this earth and you conquered over sin and death. Lord, that you are raised now, sitting at the right hand of your Father, that you have sent your Spirit into the world to accomplish that which you have won. The victory that you won is now being worked in our hearts and in our lives. honor you and glorify you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would show your love to our neighbors. Lord, I pray that you would teach us now. Open your word to us. Change our hearts. Transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. In this we pray. Amen. on Matthew chapter 15 the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But if you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What would have been gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So this is this turning point with Jesus and his ministry. When an entourage of religious leaders come up from Jerusalem, it's a big deal. So so maybe as an equivalent, think about if a big entourage of pastors and scholars like came up from LA with the deliberate purpose of talking to a local pastor here. Like it's it's an effort and it's important. It's a big deal. You don't just do that for no reason. So obviously, Jesus' ministry is starting to cause some concern in the religious community. He's up in Galilee. He's he's up in the kind of the rural parts of Israel, but like the ramifications of his ministry is kind of spreading everywhere. So like down in their capital in Jerusalem, the religious center, they're hearing about it, they're concerned. So the Pharisees and the scribes come. The Pharisees are like the super serious. The super serious. They make sure they have 
everything lined up just right. They take things, shall I say, seriously. The scribes, they're the scholars. The scribes, what their job was to copy the Bible. So if you wanted to know, hey, what was in Deuteronomy 16? The scribes say, I'll tell you. I've copied it only 70, 000, you know, 17 times this month, right? So their job was to copy. So they were the ones who know things about the Bible. And so kind of this coalition of forces come, and it's obvious that they're spying on Jesus. They're like trying, trying just to trip him up. They're like checking him out here, checking out his disciples there. They're not coming to learn from Jesus. And so they have a concern. And they're going to confront this young upstart prophet with all the full force of their religious authority. Pity them. Jesus resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what is their charge? Why do you break the traditions of the elders? For your disciples, they, they don't wash their hands when they eat. Okay, now, to be clear, there is no requirement in the Bible to wash your hands before you eat. And every child, every five-year-old, my children will be like, yes, <laughs> we knew it. <laughs> We don't have to wash our hands before every meal. So this is not like a commandment of God. Now, there are times that you would wash in the Old Testament. And and the idea here with washing is not sanitary washing per se. It's it's religious purifying washing to symbolize you become unclean, stained with sin. God wants you to be purified. So that's why you wash. Now, it seems that then... The religious leaders just wanted to go above and beyond. So they have what they call these quote-unquote traditions of the elders. And, and they've kind of just upped the requirements. Like, well, I know we're supposed to wash at certain times, but hey, why don't we just cover our bases and wash all the time? Okay. So a little bit of like Bible history real quick. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were exiled from the land. God judged them and he sent them away. They were captured. They were sent to Babylon. And God's charge to them over and over again is, you have forgotten my law. You have forgotten my law. You do not obey my law. And now you're going to bear the consequences of being a lawbreaker. You're going to be sent from this land. Okay. And then God redeems his people. He brings them back to the land. So you can imagine... Fast forward a little bit. Right. We got kicked out of the land for breaking the law. I've got an idea. Let's not do that again. Okay. And so so what they did is they created, they literally called it a fence around the law. They would create extra rules to say, God said don't do this. Got it. Let's not even get close to that. Let's make some extra rules that we would follow so you don't even get close to the breaking of that commandment inside of there. So, for example, an illustration. Um, In my family, I was the law keeper. And as much as I could be, as an older brother, the law enforcer. Like, I had a very developed sense of righteousness. You might have called me a Pharisee. (laughs) The Lord save me. So if my parents said, don't go play in the street, which is a great rule, by the way, because cars... I'd be like, I gotcha. Don't even get on the sidewalk. Right? Don't even get on the sidewalk. Why would you go on the sidewalk if not to go into the street? 
And so I would be the one that my brothers would be like, walk, like the first they'd listen to me for like five minutes if I got lucky. And they're like, I want to play on the sidewalk. It's not grass. You can do chalk. You can do it. And so they're getting on the sidewalk, and I'm getting all freaked out. And I'd be like, run it. Like, they want, they want, they want to run the street. It's like, are they in the street? No, they want to run the street. How do you know they want to run the street? They're on the sidewalk. So, like, some, so then, like, what happens? Like, this good idea of, like, making extra rules suddenly becomes the rule. Like, like, well, why would you break this rule if not to break the other one? Yeah, so, so somehow they got conflated, and it seems that this is what's happened with the Pharisees. The point was not to break these other rules. But then you start breaking their rules. Like, why would you break our rule if not to break, or not to diminish the law? Don't you care about the law? Do you want to see your people going into exile again? What are you doing, Jesus? Now, of course, of course, this feels nitpicky. And it's really easy to scoff at them 2,000 years later. But let's, let's understand what's at stake. One, one missionary that I was reading who was commenting on this passage said, To the modern reader, this dispute may seem like only of historical interest. But for Jesus and the early church, it was a matter of life or death. And in practice, probably more critical in turning the tide of Judaism against Jesus to any doctrinal dispute. Why? Where Christians live today among Hindus and Muslims, differences are daily experienced more in what people eat or don't eat than in what they believe. The exclusion of certain foods is the exclusion of certain people. So the real dispute here is not about food or how you eat food, it's about community, end quote. So there's these two communities sitting side by side and they're following, as it were, different rules. How are you going to get along? In other words, who's in and who's out of the people of God? Who are the true worshipers of God? Who are the ones that will be blessed by God? Who will God establish his kingdom with? Well, in their minds, clearly not Jesus. Well, Jesus, as it were, flips a script on them. Now, notice his response isn't, well, goes something like, well, you're doing something worse. I mean, he brings up something worse that they're doing, but if it's like, well, I'm doing this, but you're doing that, so obviously you're the worst party here. That's not what Jesus is going at, because that would be an implicit... Um, admission of guilt. Like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm breaking the law. I know that I know they're breaking the law. But you're doing it worse. He's not saying that. No. What Jesus is going to show that they're just missing the point of the law. Just, just the whole thing. And so what does he do? He's going to go to the Ten Commandments. Like, you want to talk about law? Let's go to the first ten that God gave you. So in the Bible, the Torah is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 613 laws are given in Deuteronomy. But the first ten, these are like the foundational ones. These are the ones that, in some, in some cases, well, I shouldn't say case, but I'll say case. Um, 
the Decalogue. This is what you should do. This is how you should obey. The ceremonial law, ritual laws. But oftentimes, so okay, it's the laws it gives after the Decalogue, oftentimes are just kind of explanations of how these ten would work out. So, you know, don't murder. Well, what if there's manslaughter? Okay, let's talk about manslaughter. And so there's kind of, it's like case law. But you have these first ten. Now, the first four in the Ten Commandments address your relationship with God. Don't have another God. I am your God. Don't have any idols of even what you think I would look like. Don't do it. Obey the Sabbath. I forgot the fourth. Someone help me out. Fourth. <laughs> or I just skipped the third. First four. This is great, right? <laughs> All right. So the first four dealing with how you relate to God, and then the next six dealing on how you deal with people. Love your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't do all these things. But like how you behave amongst each other. So, remember how Jesus said the law can be summed up with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor by yourself. You can literally break the Ten Commandments up into those two categories. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. Now, of the six, dealing with how do we relate with each other, because, I mean, there's some important ones. Don't steal. Yeah, it sounds important. Don't murder. Sounds very important. Don't commit adultery. Sounds important. Do you know what the first one is? The first commandment, how we deal with each other in a society. Honor your father and your mother. Oh, I would put murder first, but okay. (laughs) Why? Why? The relationship with children to their parents, it is, it is almost as it were, after your relationship with God, like the bedrock relationship of societies. Society starts with a family first. Children come to this world knowing nothing. Who teaches them? The parents. And they train them and they train them. And when that child relationship is broken or it's, or it's reviled, or it's, it's a big deal. That's how societies crumble from the inside out. So God says, honor your father and your mother. And the, the word honor, it's not, like, it's not like lip service honor. It's like you truly honor this. Now, the understanding is you honor your parents, obey them, take care of them, in much the same way you would like, honor like, anyone that God puts an authority over you. So even if your parents, you feel like your parents are not worthy of honor, well, they're worthy of honor in the fact that that is who God has put over your life. And so, in honoring your parents, you're honoring God. The next, how serious is God about this? The next chapter, after he gives the Ten Commandments, he gives this, what we would consider a very controversial law in our society today. He says, if children revile or, as it were, showed a continual state of contempt for their parents, they were to die. So in this society, God setting up the society, it's so fundamental the family stays intact, that this relationship is established, that you learn from your parents, that you would cut off people who disobeyed and people who were like dishonoring this. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of sins that God takes seriously, and this honoring is one of them. Which is not to say though. It's probably a whole sermon unto itself. Honor does not 
always, always mean obey. That's not something you could always do. What if they tell you to do something that's sinful? Well, you wouldn't do that. His God comes first. But there's a way to not obey, but still honor. So God takes it seriously. And you would think, and probably you would think, that these religious Pharisees and scribes, they would take this seriously as well. But Jesus says, this is not true. Not so. So Jesus says, okay, Ten Commandments. The first one dealing with people. Honor your father and your mother. What are you doing? So the Pharisees, they were saying something like, people are telling their fathers and the mothers, oh, oh, you need money. I am so sorry. I have given that money to God for, for, for his purposes. I gave it as an offering. I can't give it to you. Now, think of it. Let's just think of this for a second. What would be more important? Money given to God or money given to people? Or money given to God or money given to your parents? It's, on the surface, it says, of course, giving your money to God would be more pious, more righteous. That's, that's right. You should stick by that. Now, the motivation of why this is happening is, is not particularly clear. Everybody has an opinion about why people were saying this to their parents. Now, could it be that they're just trying to get out of their familial obligations, like, not this again. No, I really do not want to come up and help you. And so they're shirking the responsibility of saying, well, I gave the money to God, I'm sorry. Maybe. That could be it. Could it be that the religious leaders are really appreciating the extra money flowing into the ministry? And so they're saying, like, well, you know, you gave that money to, to uh, God, you can't give that to your parents now. So maybe even if, if someone had said, oh, I'm going to give an offering. This, this land belongs to God. The, the, the produce of this land is going to go to the temple. And then the parents come up, and they're like, oh, oh. And, and they go to a religious leader. It's like, hey, you know, I know I said I give you the, the produce of this field to you, but you know my parents, they, they have this need. And the religious leader is like, well, you said that you're going to give this to God. You cannot go back on that oath. And so they would not let people do that. So what's the ruling motivation behind it? It's kind of hard to tell. We could just speculate. But whatever it is, the point is clear. Your fence, your, your rules, you think you're protecting the law? You're nullifying it. You're just breaking it. You're, you're missing the point. You're destroying it. I mean, think about it. They're getting after Jesus about hand-washing. Meanwhile, elderly people are suffering. Hand-washing, Jesus. He says, suffering people. What do we care about here? What's important? You have missed the the heart, the, the ethos of what the law was about. What did God mean by the law? So I'll remind you again. Jesus said, you can summarize the law up with these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which means everything in the law points to that. So yeah, there's purity, ritual laws about washing, about how to sacrifice animals, how to give offerings. They were pictures 
that we are sinners and God is a Savior. God gives laws so He can come and be with His people. God gave laws because He cared. God gave laws because when they first came to God, He was a storm on a mountain. They couldn't even get close. He said, I'll tell you how you can get close. I will set up a system whereby I forgive your sins and we can be together, God with His people. So it's not just purity for purity's sake. It's purity for relationship with God. That's why we are made pure. Now, and then understand now, as we see that Christ has come, and what they say, those purity laws are pictures of the reality, which is Jesus Christ would die for us. He would take our sins from us. He would give us his Holy Spirit, which would wash us and cleanse us of our sins sin and our stain. And that is how we have fellowship with God, ultimately. And so, everybody, in a sense, Old Testament to New Testament, were saved by faith in God's provision. That is the argument of the whole New Testament, that even those people who were giving sacrifices, it was not the sacrifices that saved them, it was ultimately God's provision in His Son that saved them. He was the Lamb of which every little lamb represented. And every social behavioral law in that society about how you don't murder and don't steal and how if your goat kills that guy's goat or bull kills his you know, worker and all these like laws are all pointing to the fact that God intends for humanity to flourish. He does not want injustice. He does not want people suffering in his land. He does not want people starving in his land. He doesn't want people as outcasts in his land. He wants people to be in fellowship with one another. And so, God's law, even though it seems harsh, is motivated by love. Yeah. There's 613. Yeah, it, from Genesis through Deuteronomy. Starting in Exodus, actually, through Deuteronomy. Now, if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's not just a law book. It's a story. Which says, God created, God saved his people. And when God saved his people, he wanted to have fellowship with his people, so he creates laws so they can be with each other and have a functional society. And it goes like this. God gives laws. And then there's a story. What's happening in that story? They're breaking the law. And then God gets some more laws. And he goes to the next round of stories where they do it. They're breaking those laws. And then he gets some more laws. And they're breaking those laws. And he gets more laws. He's breaking the laws. More laws. Breaking the laws. It's pattern, 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 pattern. Until finally at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, I don't know a lot, but I know one thing. You can't keep laws. <laughs> you have hard hearts. Your hearts are just not in it. You need God to change your heart. So the law, even though the law means love, to do the law means love, to do these things means love, you're not doing it. And so what does the law become? The law becomes a tutor. These are good things. You can't do them. Huh, I wonder why. So at some point, Hopefully, what Moses says, you understand, like, oh gosh, I have a bad heart. 
I need your salvation. Cleanse me. Purify me. Change my affections. Change my desires. Because I obviously am not desiring the right things. And so that's what Christ does. He sends his spirit and he changes your heart. And so then he sends the Holy Spirit and he does something. It produces fruits. Fruits. Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which means that if you are doing all those things, you don't need law anymore. If you're, if you're naturally loving people, naturally loving God with all that you are, why would you need to regulate it? Why would you need 65 mile per hour speed limits if everybody was driving perfectly, kindly, never cutting people off, never trying to like get ahead and causing accidents? You wouldn't need them. So Jesus is showing them that by neglecting the parents, they were just breaking the whole ethos, the whole intention of the law. They were not loving people. They were not loving God. And so he says, you think you are a true worshiper of God. That much is obvious. You think like you are like the preeminent worshipers of God. But you are in fact hypocrites. Hypocrites. We love that word in America, by the way. But you're acting the part, but it's not really you. Hypocrites are actors. You know, you, you go on a TV show, you act like a villain, but then you're a nice guy. No, yeah, I'm not really a bad guy. He says, you act like you're worshipers of God. You are not worshipers of God. Here's what God says about you. Quote, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. They're teaching as doctrines, commandments of men. Martin Luther, the reformer, 1500s, taking on the Catholic Church. Don't think he intended to do that, but that's what ended up happening. He actually had a re- he has this really good sermon on the Ten Commandments. I will not read you the whole thing, but let me give you a summary of what he said. He argues that the Old Testament says don't have idols. And the New Testament emphasizes justification by faith alone. Martin Luther says, you know what? I think you're talking about the same thing. Because the fundamental problem in law-breaking is always idolatry. We never, we never break other commandments without first breaking the law against idolatry. So, so get this. So, this, is, this is one of the sermons that kind of displays you up one side and down the other. Why did you steal? Because you treasured something more than God. Why did you murder? Because you're treasuring something more than God. Or you're angry and you're not trusting God. So if you break any of those commandments, you really are just proving that you broke the first one. You have something in your life that's an idol above and beyond in the place where God should be. So to break any of the commandments is to break the first. Have no other gods. Okay, but what if I don't? Break any of them. Like, what if I say, well, God, I've never had idols. I've never broken the Sabbath. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never done any of these things. These things. He says, so funny. It sounds like you have an idol. It's yourself. That you are relying on your own self for your merit before God. So when you break any of the commandments, you've broken the first. And even if you were to keep them, you're probably keeping them in the wrong ways anyways. 
and you're breaking the first. The Ten Commandments just has you coming and going. So, he says, if we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us because of Jesus Christ. Because it's not just murder. It's hate. It's not just adultery. It's lust. It's in there. And your your basis for coming for God is, look how good I am. I've kept all your commandments and the commandments I gave. Instead of the fact that it was the blood of Jesus Christ, that was the death of Jesus Christ, that is your acceptance before God, then you have missed the whole point. Do you want no other idols? No other things but But Jesus Christ, His salvation, his justification for you be your basis of coming before God. And then our good works, what are they? It's like, but I do good works now, God, Jesus, I do good works. You'll be like Paul. It's like, you know, I worked harder than all the other apostles. I don't think any of the apostles would ever argue that point with them, probably. I worked harder than all the apostles. But not I. It was God working through me. It was God working in me. That's the nature of grace. That's the nature of God's power. He works in and through us. He not only gives us our standing before God, He gives us our sanctification before God. He gives us our transformation in our hearts. He gives us the desire to love others. The true worshipers of God are those who have been united to Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection. The true worshipers of God are those who have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection by faith. Pharisees, you're missing the boat. Religious evangelical Christians, you could be missing the boat. And maybe one of the ways to indicate that you're missing the boat is how do you think of other people? How do you measure other people's righteousness? Do you have those little rules? Like I remember, like I remember, I was the Pharisee guy, kid, like totally the Pharisee kid. Like my buddy, like '90s, okay, so this is like not cool anymore. Got his hair spiked and like, you know, like all cool, and he was wearing like the. And I was thinking like, what are you doing, man? What were you doing trying to be all cool? Like, he was a really good kid, and he really loved Jesus, but I'm sitting like, in my little heart judging him, right? I mean, just think about where that takes you. Like, just stacking law upon law, rule upon rule. I mean, next thing you know, people are walking around, work us, right? Just like, you can't keep this up. How, are you, how do you view people? How are you judging people? Because... I know when we come for God, okay, sometimes it's hard, but like, this is all my hope and righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, that's how we think of ourselves. How do you think of others? How do you think of other Christians? Do you see them on the basis of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Like, that is their righteousness or their good behavior? There's another point here. There's another big point. We're standing on it in this passage. 
I mentioned at the beginning that this becomes like a major point of confrontation between the Jews and Jesus. This became a major point of confrontation between the early church and the Jews. And when you're reading Matthew, Matthew's assuming you've got some like knowledge of the Bible. It's, it's assumed. It, he just he just like uses he pulls Old Testament passages in, and assumes that you kind of know what's going on. And so like the kind of the reading requirement. I mean, there's you can read the gospel without knowing the Old Testament. You're probably gonna God will save you. Right? God can save you through through it without reading the Old Testament. But um, some people say Matthew is writing to the Jews. Specifically, I'm not sure that's not the case, mainly because he doesn't use the Hebrew Bible, he uses the Greek Bible. I think he's writing to the early church with their Greek Bibles of the Old Testament saying, uh, like, what's going on here? And so he assumes you've been reading it and you know. So you're coming up with this controversy and you're like, that, that was it right there. And you're like, what happened? What, what happened? It's like, that was, the, that, was the, that was when he did it. And you're like, did what? So, so then Mark, who assumes less knowledge of the Old Testament, Make sure, he adds a little note in there, just make sure you saw it. Thank you, Mark. I would have missed it, too. So Jesus does this. It's like, what's the law about? It's basically the argument. What's the law about? The law is about love. And he says, he calls the people together and says, hey, what defiles a person? What makes people unclean before God? Is it the food they eat? No, it's what's in them to begin with. It's what comes out of them. It's evidenced by what you say and what you do. And so Mark says, Thus, he declared all foods to be clean. Oh, <laughs> that's what I missed. <laughs> and then, like, even still, like, okay, what? Now, we can grant the Pharisees were wrong. Just start there. The Pharisees were missing a point. They're wrong. But the fact remains that there were actually boundary markers in the law, meaning there were things in the law deliberately designed to make a separation between Jew and non-Jew. We call non-Jews Gentiles, by the way. So Jew and Gentile. They were set up specifically so that you dress differently, you shave differently, which is to say you actually didn't shave if you're a Jewish person. Like Alan, you could grow a beard. Where is he? You know, like he's got a job. He has to shave all the time. You can never grow a beard. But like you, you didn't shave. You looked differently. You sounded differently. And you ate differently. There were the kosher laws, like. This animal's unclean, this animal's clean, this animal's unclean. Eat this, can't eat that. Okay, so when, when Israel was in the land and other neighbors, non-Jews, were coming in there, first of all, they'd spot you a mile away. You stood out like a sore thumb. Like, there, was, there was a look, there was a type, and you were off through the look and type. And the other thing is, good luck going to their house for dinner. They invite you over for dinner, let me guess, what are you going to serve? Pork, can't eat pork. Like, good luck getting a kosher meal with a bunch of Gentiles. So you, like, having this table fellowship, sitting down and enjoying time together, it just is not going to happen. So Paul says in Ephesians 2 that when Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law for us, he took down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles so that what? They could now become one people. Now, this is really easy for us for Gentiles because we didn't have to give up nothing for this. It just came to us. We finally got to get in on the blessings, in on like, the glorious promises of Jesus Christ. But if you were a Jew, yeah. Okay, so let's just start with pork. So now, I'm trying 
trying to think of a foreign food that we just think would be like totally revolting. What's that? Goat. <laughs> Goat's good, man. Have you had goat? Yeah. You should try it sometime. <laughs> it's, it's usually, my brother served in Korea. Korea has like a lot of like weird foods of like pickled everything, right? So this is the food you're looking at. You're like, you want me to do what? Eat what? Like, no, that's not happening, right? Okay, so pork. Let's start there. Peter is going to go to a Gentile. Go, he's going to travel a distance, go to a Gentile's home. Where is he going to stay? He's going to be in the Gentile's home. So God preps him, and he reinforces the idea again that all foods are clean. You can eat whatever you want. Now, pork. Before the New Testament, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when Israel is just getting like whacked around like a ping pong ball, this nation conquers them, this nation conquers them back. This nation conquers them, this nation conquers them back. This, this one guy decides, like, okay, you are a very unruly people. I'm just going to put you under my iron fist. He went into their temple and set, it, set up the temple as a temple to Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar. And then there are the, the Maccabees, the stories of the Maccabees, and some of, them, some of them are history, and they're actually pretty interesting. You should read them sometime. There's one, it talks about seven brothers who they come up to this general, Antiochus, I can never say his name right, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, are you with us or are you against us? And here's how you prove it. Eat some pork. Eat some pork. If you eat some pork, I'll make you, I'll make you a, a sub-governor. I'll make you a little... I'll give you a position in my government. Just do it. And the first brother says, I'm not doing it. So he, so he like, torturously executes the oldest brother. Goes to the next brother. Eat pork. The brother says, no. He torturously murders that brother. And it, they go down the line until all seven brothers have been torturously murdered in front of their mother for not eating pork. Okay. So it's not even that pork is revolting. Eating pork is like burning the American flag. It's like you're making a statement that I can let this go. I'll eat pork. It's like those people did not eat pork. They died for it. I'm going to eat pork. I'm going to do it. God's people in the Old Testament was a come and see people. Come and see what God is doing. Podunk nation with a bunch of cows just flourishing. He's captured by Egypt. God delivers them. How did that happen? Come see what God's doing. They live on the wilderness. Like, imagine just being on the border. Imagine being in the, having a city, having a house on the edge of Death Valley. And every couple months, this nomadic group just kind of comes, camps, and then moves on. And you're like, who does that? And where are they getting their food? Where are they getting their water? How come they've been doing this for so many years? How are they not all dead in the wilderness? Come and see what God's doing. So when Israel shows up in Canaan, everybody knows who they are. Rahab tells them, oh, we know. And we know that God's on your side. And then they, they conquer Canaan. They live in Canaan. And they're literally sitting on the I-5 of that of the world at that moment, like everybody comes by, and you can't but look and see Israel. God was a look and see people. The Queen of Sheba comes up, 
to see the wealth of Solomon. Come and see what God is doing. But now, God's people are a go and tell people. Go and tell. Get out of here. And in, in, in Acts, the, the people weren't going and telling. The persecution came, and that sent them moving. And that's when the Gentiles started being saved. The church is told we need to take the initiative. We are told to go into the neighborhoods of people who are not like us and eat food that's not like us. Don't make them do it. Don't make them come to us. We go to them. We get culturally uncomfortable first. And we get culturally flexible first. Here's how Paul puts it. Paul was like the first Jewish missionary to all the Gentiles. He says, here's how I did it. He says, though I am free from all, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. So when he was around the Jews, he acted like a Jew. That was fine. He could do it. So that he might win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I knew I was not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win out those outside the law. So when I was with Jews, I acted like a Jew. I was with Gentiles, I behaved like a Gentile, so I could just sit with them and talk with them and not seem like this weirdo. I mean, we're weird enough, okay? We have this weird message, like, might as well not because you're stinky or wearing weird clothes or like eating weird foods, right? So might as well like take some of those barriers down so you might win some of them. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why? I do this for the sake of the gospel. I do this for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're free. That I may share with them in its blessing. And the sign that the church is doing this is that the church started to be filled with all types of people who should not be getting along. People, the type, the Christians, you know, everybody's got a type. Do you know what the type of the Christian churches should be? The type is, these people should not be hanging out together. Like, how are these people getting along and loving each other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were there uncomfortable moments? Uh-huh. Were there struggles? Yep. Read Acts. Read Galatians. Read Ephesians. Read almost all the epistles. It's in there somewhere. Remember Galatians. Like, it starts off with Peter's eating with Gentiles. Yay, perfect. But then some Jews showed up, and he started feeling some cultural pressure, and he starts eating with Jews. And Paul confronts him and says, what are you doing? And it's almost like Peter says, this is not a gospel issue. It's not a big deal. And Paul says, this is precisely a gospel issue. Either the gospel works or it doesn't. Either it saves all people or it doesn't. And either you're participating in that or you're not. That is the gospel. Jesus asks us to follow his example. Jesus loves those who the Jews deemed as unlovable. He touched those who the Jews thought were untouchable. He spent time with crooks. He spent time with prostitutes. 
The people he didn't want to get close to are the people he got close to. And not only was he just getting close to them, he had compassion for them. He loved them. He died for us. Because we are them, whether you recognize it or not. He frees us from cultural boundaries so that we would be free to share the gospel. If we are the disciples of Jesus Christ, a disciple is not a learner. A disciple is a doer. We're apprentices of Jesus Christ. So when he... When we read through Matthew, this is like, we're getting hammered with this again and again and again. Like, Matthew is just relentless. Jesus is relentless. I was thinking we're going to be done with ethics as soon as we're done with chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount, over. Okay, got that done. Moving on. And it's just showing up again and again and again. I bet you the disciples were starting to get this weird feeling of trepidation. Like, I wonder how far he's going to make us go. We see Jesus doing it, but we're his disciples. I wonder how far he's going to make us go. And they quickly found out how far he wanted them to go as they went places where they didn't belong or felt like they didn't belong. I think as we read as a church through the Gospel of Matthew, we should start be getting a feeling of trepidation and asking ourselves, where is it that God is going to have us do? How far is he going to make us go? Because if we get through the whole book of Matthew and totally miss the point, if we look exactly the same before studying Matthew and after studying Matthew, then we might as well be the Pharisees. If this is not transforming us as a people, then something is wrong. So I've been having like this kind of sensation like, huh, I wonder what God is doing. I wonder what God is going to do. I'm asking you, you, all of you, we should be praying the same thing together. What is God calling us to do? If for some weird reason our church disbanded, would Fortuna, would our neighbors know the difference? We become like Christ who left. How comfortable was he in heaven in fellowship with his Father? Yet for our sake, became poor, who took on our flesh, who got sick, hungry, tired, and then died for us so that we might become people like him. We, as a church, are called the body of Christ with gifts and abilities that he has put together. And we're in a, I feel like we're in a good spot. The church is so excited, so vibrant, like ministries and and growing, and excitement, and kids. Yeah, God's doing something. We're, we're the body of Christ, and bodies weren't meant to sit around. Every time the Bible mentions the body of Christ, it's always action-oriented. So what are we going to do about it? So let's spend time at his table. Spend time as people who like, probably would not been in each other's lives, short of the fact that we all became Christians. And then we all found ourselves at this church. And now we all sit at a table looking at people unlike us in many ways, like us in other ways, all having the same thing in common, the gospel. So let's, let's eat like a family.
the worship team in. His arm outstretched with strength. 
He had scattered the proud and brought down all vacancy. He has lifted the lowly, brings goodness to the poor. My Savior's love endures. My Savior's love endures. My Savior's love I received from the Lord that I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you, for it was not the powerful of this world or the rich of this world or the well-to-do people of this world that you have demonstrated your gospel with. No, Lord, it was the weak things of this world. It was the lowly. It is the poor. Lord, we are all poor if we recognize that or not. Apart from you, we we are in poverty. Lord, we may have material things, but we are missing the most important thing. Our our lives are in shambles without our God at the heart of it. But Lord, you came and you saved us. and You sent your spirit to make us your children so that we can cry, Abba, Father. Lord, you have made us the children of God. And we praise you for that. And God, I pray that you would use us. Lord, that we would become all things to all people, that we put aside our fear, that we put aside our our preferences. Lord, that we would be a people that goes. So that people might be saved. Lord, give us your love and your compassion for people. That people might be saved. Lord, if there is anything you want us to do as Redwood Christian Fellowship, if there is something you have planned for us, Lord, we ask that you would make that known. We're all ears. We are your disciples. You tell us to go, we go. Here we are. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our paths in the way that we should walk. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.